Last week, there were a number of people who stopped us on certain points in the passage we were reading and said, wait a minute, this frustrates me. Wait a minute, I don't think that's a good explanation. Wait a minute, I don't think you're really addressing the issue. Behind those people were the eye rollers. Those were the people who were like, oh my God, it's scripture. I mean, like, what don't you get? It's Paul, like, just shut up. So I'm addressing you tonight if you're one of those people. The beauty of it is I know that in many churches, the way that we teach relies on three criteria to make a sermon good. You have to laugh, you have to cry, and you have to clap. And if you do those three things in a sermon and do it in 20 minutes, then you're a successful preacher and you can walk out of here. The problem is if you chase the people out to the parking lot and you ask them a quiz just 10 minutes after the sermon is over and two more songs have been played, they can hardly remember what it is that made them laugh, clap, and cry. Because we're so used to just getting an emotional charge out of things, and that's the temptation that we faced last week. I like this group because when somebody calls it, they just kind of like ring the gong a little bit and go, stop, I don't buy it. Especially in something as rich with theological meaning as the doxology that begins Ephesians. The temptation that I see a lot of times when we read something like Paul's letters, I'll be straight with you, we skim it. You ever reading a book and then you see a big block quote and you just kind of like, as soon as you see the quote, you just kind of skip to the end and hope the author just tells you what the block quote was? You don't want to actually read it because that would take work, right? And that's what we do when we read Paul sometimes. Paul begins and goes, thanks be to the God. And you're like, let's get to the part where he says, like, fornicators, don't do this, right? Let's get to the part that just talks straight to us about things we can understand, like, don't be idolaters, don't do this. Let's look for those things. And we skip over the thanksgiving sections, the doxologies, the praises, the things that are rich with meaning. So thank you last week to the people who stopped us and said, I don't buy it. Now let me talk about what it was that kind of stopped us. This is the structure of the letter we're going in. We spent the first week with Morgan talking us through a little bit of the background of the book of Ephesians and also two verses that just were the introduction that were even rich with meaning just in those two verses. We're in the beginning of the Thanksgiving section. And it's going to go on for a while. We were focusing on verses 3 through 14, which I said was a doxology a long recitation of praise about God for what God has done. And in it was quite a bit of language, which we're going to kind of talk about a little bit more tonight, about election, about predestination. And some of us were agitated by it. The reason I want to be clear that we are not doing a full-blown discussion about predestination, as much as that might frustrate some and be pleasing to others, is because we're in the book of Ephesians. And to do Ephesians justice, we have to walk through Ephesians the way that it was written by Paul. And Paul puts these things into a prayer and a thanksgiving and a doxology. He states them as facts. He does not spend time trying to instruct on them, to debate them, to correct anyone as he does in other parts of his letters. He states them as factual and we should do the same. Although tonight we'll talk about it a little bit more as we did last week. But you know me, there's no way that I'm going to do a talk on predestination one night. We would have to do a 12-part series, right? That's just because me. I'm going to go on forever and ever until we beat it to the ground. 
so that if you don't understand predestination, you'll at least be so sick of it you won't care when we're done with it, right? That's the Exodus way. So, that aside, what I want to do tonight is at least go back and remind you, we spent quite a bit of time looking at this word in Christ, which we will see over and over in Paul's writings, especially in Ephesians. We spent time last week kind of highlighting what that meant and finding it. We did spend time on election, salvation, and we started to discuss the places where he brings up the triunity of God just in this doxology, Father, Son, and Spirit, all mentioned within these verses and the development of that theology early on. There were three things I want to pull out from last week that kind of stalled us a little bit. So I'm going to address three things briefly just because I think there's still some tension that we left off with that I'd like to actually address if we could. The first one is, what is the implication of this language on predestination? So, let me put it this way. We were having a debate last week over the translation issue. The NIV, it was said, translated this word as predestination. People thought that was a theologically loaded word. We shouldn't use it. Okay, Let's look at it this way. Other people thought that some of the other versions they brought up might address it better. I'm not here to defend the NIV. I only use it because it's the most prevalent one that all of us have. So here's the Greek word, proorizo is the Greek word, that is translated in some scriptures as predestination or predestined, to be accurate. In others, foreordained. All right? Someone brought up that it could be translated destined. But here is the definition from the lexicon that is the most used to determine beforehand, to ordain, or in other lexicons, to foreordain. Again, an ordination that's happened from before time or before a period that's happening now or to decide upon ahead of time. So the reason I bring it up is because we were hoping that maybe the definition would somehow get us off the hook and we wouldn't feel so weird about it. The definition actually puts us right back where we started. Some of us are uncomfortable with the concept that Paul talks about in the opening pages of Ephesians that some people have been called by God before time, before the creation of the earth, before the foundations of the earth, before creation itself. Some people have been called. And that was the first issue that really ground us to a halt because I could tell some of us didn't like it. I want to tell you that what we ended up spending time last week is probably not going to be the thing that we would resolve if we did look at this issue. I'm just going to bring up two terms in case you're interested in looking at them further. The two terms are monergism and synergism. Mono being one and sin being a multiple or a a relationship approach. This is what's really going on in this debate that some of you were trying to articulate, but we didn't do it very well. The issue is... It's clear from Scripture that God calls. It's clear from Scripture that God chooses. The question we are wrestling with is anything required by us in return. And I want you to notice that in Ephesians, that issue is just not addressed by Paul in the doxology because he's praising God. He's not doing theological instruction. But what we were wrestling with in this room last week was precisely that issue. Okay, even if I accept it from the foundations of all time or before time that God has chosen, ordained, whatever that your words you're going to use, what does that mean though? Does that mean that that's it? He gets to just choose and nobody really has a choice or must I have some sort of reaction? 
if you're the person who's troubled by that, that's what you really want to spend your time looking at. And someday, when we get around to it, maybe we'll spend a series talking about this issue. Okay? Here's the shortcut for you. I'll tell you that a lot of people believe, I would say a slight majority of people believe, that the idea that God chooses and requires nothing on our part in return is probably what some people would consider the majority view, the Calvinist view, and the idea that some response by us, the synergist view, that would probably be a close second, and maybe the Arminius view. Is that fair? Does that at least give you an idea if you want to go look a little bit further? That's all I want to do because, as I said, we're studying Ephesians, not the doctrine of predestination, but it's clear that it's taught in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple places where it's taught so you can see it for yourself in other places outside before we move on. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined... He also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Probably the most succinct discussion of it in the New Testament, but you'd have to unpack that in weeks of understanding. The difficulty of this verse for those who think that some response on our part is needed is the tense in Greek in which it's written implies that all of those actions were done by God completely in the past. They're not dependent in any way on our reaction. So God foreknew, he predestined, he called those people, he justified those people, he glorified those people. Past tense. Completed act. First Peter 1 and 2 is addressed to God's elect. Exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedient and to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. And I think last week Morgan mentioned the passage from John. One of them is John 5.21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So those are strong passages that you can look at. And here's some others. If you have some notes, you can write down Passages that imply strongly, and some expressly, that we are chosen. But like I said, that doesn't resolve the issue of what does it mean if you're chosen. Synergism view would say God chooses, and then you have to respond somehow. And a Calvinist view would say, nope, it's already done all by God. If I could put it in a way that makes sense, we can move off the theology and get back into Ephesians One view says that God, the rescuer, just reaches into the water and grabs you. That's the end of it. He just saves some and not others. Okay? The other view says that God reaches down and those who grab back are the ones that are pulled out. Is that easy enough? That's what we're really wrestling with. And the reason I went through all that explanation is because what I want to point out is, again, Paul does not stop to explain his view. He just says that we were chosen. So the next thing we were looking at last week is what does it mean to be in Christ? Like, who is going to be in Christ? Because we started to even discuss, like, what does that mean? Is everybody in Christ? 
And I want to point out that there is the language that we looked at from Ephesians. If you read it, it actually gives a definition. We brought it up, but I don't think it was loudly heard. Ray actually made this point last week, and I think it was a very strong point. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. He's talking about those who believe first. And now he's going to talk to the Gentile Christians who are the addressees of this letter. And you were also included in Christ. When? When did they gain their inclusion in Christ? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. We spent some time at the end last week talking about what it means to have the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee, and our adoption. But the point is, when are we in Christ? When you heard the message, the gospel of salvation, when you believed. One other point for clarification from last week. And this was actually a fairly good point that Jeremy brought up. It's one that's been looked at by a number of people. What does it mean for God to bring all things in heaven and on earth under Christ? That language comes from here. In the same section we are looking at, it says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Remember, mystery is not like our term of mystery. It doesn't mean something we can't figure out. It means something that we couldn't figure out, but God has now revealed. And what is the mystery of God's will? It is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. And we kind of left wrestling with that last week, so I'd like to kind of pick up there. Does this mean that Christ is reconciling everything to himself? which is what Colossians actually contributes. If God's will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, is that a statement of Christ having authority over all things? Or does that mean that everyone and everything will be reconciled in Christ? Is this a statement of universal salvation? Is this a statement of universal reconciliation? Is this a statement saying that when you bring in everything under Christ, does everything we just talked about, about being chosen, about being predestined, is that all just fly out the window? Because now he's saying, but the will of God is that everything be reconciled and brought into unity under Christ. And I'd like to actually show you the text in Colossians. We're actually going to be singing that as a worship song later. This is one of the most beautiful things written in the New Testament. So I want you to listen to these words because Paul's words in Ephesians echo right out of the words in Colossians. He begins Colossians much the same way with a hymn of praise about who Christ is. And here's what he says. Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is in the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All things, there's that same kind of idea, all things reconciled in Christ through the shedding of his blood. Does that mean that everyone is reconciled to God in a salvific way? Everyone has salvation because that was the question that was raised last week. That was the pushback that was given to the idea that some are chosen and the implication being some are not. And the objection was, wait a minute, we have a verse in Ephesians and also a verse in Colossians that says everything is reconciled through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ. Yes? This is the only thing that I would say, is that there's a difference between a salvific reconciliation and something that involves justice. God still can't tolerate sin in his presence. There are some people who will not choose him. Um, And I think that is also a form of reconciliation because it's final. Okay. So they're reconciled, but you're saying that doesn't somehow give them the salvation that Paul talks about when he says justified, glorified, those terms that he uses for kind of that future tense, okay? Here's what's interesting about this verse. It kind of goes on. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Remember, he's writing to a group of Christians at Colossae. He's saying, you were once alienated. You were once enemies. Now you are reconciled through his blood. But here's the catchphrase. Look at verse 23. If. It's conditional. If you continue in your faith. Another translation says, provided that you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Yes? Yeah, I think even by using an outside writing from Paul, um, if you look through the scriptures, there's no way you'd get the concept that Paul thinks that every single person is saved. Like, you could say, some people, you know, if you're... If you're going to pit scripture against pit, you're going to say, oh, well, he's just inconsistent, but I don't buy that. I don't think those, like first, like Colossians 1 is this universalist, because there's too many other places like this one that you're showing where clearly Paul understands that some people have been saved, some people actually walk in the faith, and many others don't. Uh, there's no way uh, he's trying to make some claim that ultimately everyone comes to faith in Christ. I don't buy it at all. Okay. Jeremy? I just only want to point out that kind of philosophical terms here which I think make it more complicated when we talk about the fullness of time. So like, if you take the idea of the fullness of time or some sense of eternalness, right, then you take this concept of salvation. And yet, there were people before Christ who were saved. And so, I don't know that I object except that I want to point out that the, the idea of the fullness of time or the idea of Things being reconciled in Christ to God has one picture right after Christ but it also had a different picture at some other time too and so I don't know I'm not offering it as a 
this is a universalist approach. What I'm offering is that it's not so, I, I think Paul is smart enough that he's simply not saying, yeah, you heard it, you know, it's okay. And that, I don't think that's what Paul is necessarily equating like salvation to. I mean, I mean clearly there's something more there. Because there's other questions that get begged as well, you know, people who don't like hear, you know. And that, that makes me wonder like, well, are they reconciled? Are part, in that we are created by God, are we created and being created in the image of God? Are we created with some part of our soul or something that, that stirs and turns towards God if we don't hear the right words? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that come up when I think of like the fullness of time being reconciled in Christ and then like this idea of salvation. Paul would agree with you, by the way, on some points because he would say, of course, salvation isn't just saying some magic words. In fact, he was the one who came up with this kind of threefold description of salvation being justification, like an instant act of being born into like right standing with God. Then there's that sanctification concept he talked about where you're being saved through being transformed into the image of Christ. And then the glorification concept, something that is later, which is very interesting because he had a word for what comes later so that he could distinguish what's happening now from what's happening then. And most of us as Christians make no distinction. Like, we think salvation is only about then, not anything to do with now. So I think that you're right. Plus, I agree with you also that there are the issues of what do people do before the new covenant, right? What do people do who are outside of either covenant, who have not heard of it, right? So I'm not trying to limit salvation to that, neither does Paul. And I'm glad that you're saying that also we're not going to take these words to expand them to the point where, and it isn't really your argument, but the argument's made all the time. People read these words in Ephesians, and they read them in Colossians, and they say, I don't think that all this chosen language really matters because he's saying that everyone is going to be reconciled and everything is going to be reconciled. We have nothing to worry about. So I think that's probably not correct, both for the point that Morgan brought up, which is inconsistent with many, many, many verses in Scripture, even Paul's own writings. And there's this conditional thing in here about, like, you have to do something. Here's what I find very interesting, by the way. Maybe I'm just too much of an egghead. I just said a few minutes ago that the majority view seems to be that God does all the action. It's already completed. There's nothing required on our part. But if there's a condition, that seems to imply there's something on our part. I'm just pointing out that this is one of those verses, by the way, that in some way, some of the people who believe, wait a minute, I think faith or my response to God is important. It's right there because there's a condition. And that's why I went looking through a number of commentaries. Like, is this conditional in the actual language or just in English? And I find that almost every translation makes it a conditional phrase because that's what it is. In other words, Paul in Colossians seems to say a response of some kind is needed. All right, that's against all those other verses I put up on the screen, which uh, are a number of them. And if you didn't write them down, uh, I'll give them to you later. There's at least 10 of them that I had up on the screen that you could look at. Why does this matter? You know, one of the things I looked at this week, I always ask this question, like, why does this matter? Why do we care? Why are we studying this to such depth? Like, wouldn't it just be easier to do what everybody else does and just skim the first part of Paul's Thanksgivings and just get to a part where he's talking about something that matters to my life, like, don't do this, do that, love that hate this, right? We're going to get there. He's got the ethical teaching coming up in about two or three chapters, which in our time would be about seven months. Um, (laughs) Here's why it matters. If you look at people on both sides of this debate about whether some response is needed, it really determines what they do. 
I think sometimes, really, the way we believe does affect what we do. If you look at the denominations that believe that some response by our part is needed, that God makes salvation available to all people, everyone, that this business of being chosen is just God just knowing in advance or knowing now because he's outside of time. If you look at people who believe that, they're actively evangelizing. They're actively going out and saying everyone has a chance. Everyone has been extended this hand of reconciliation. Or this hand of salvation, as Joe makes that distinction. And maybe all things will be reconciled. In fact, it says they will be. But maybe that doesn't mean that all people will be saved, but they believe that everyone has a chance. And if you look at people who believe that, they act on it. Because they feel like everyone has a chance. Time is short. You might pass away. You may never hear these words. The denominations and the groups of Christians that believe that way act on that. Or at least their theology says they should be. And then you look at the other side, the other people who believe, no, it's kind of already been determined. It is what it is. Those people that have a much, much smaller view of what our role is in evangelism. What's your view? What do you think about sharing our faith? Most of us in this room, we've already gone through that series, weren't really that excited about it. It shows in our actions. But I want to make sure that you understand that sometimes it also begins with our belief. I mean, I think the best way to figure out how somebody believes is to see their action. Jill last week made the comment about, well, there's a certain measure of futility. If God really has just determined who he's going to save, then like, how do you even know where to even make the effort? And if you feel that way, you should just think about that because this means this issue might be important to you. If I ask you, is telling other people about Christ important? Most of us would probably go, yeah, it's important. But if we ask, like, how much time do we actually spend doing that? It's not really that important to us. And I wonder if part of it has to do with our belief, just part of it. That's why I think the question matters. Yeah. I, I would just agree with you on that. I really, I think that's why we do Exodus in part because of how you think of kind of affects or infects in the way you act depending on what you, what you think. And um, there is a lot, I mean, I don't know the answers to, to some these, these questions. You know, I don't, I don't even know what it would look like for God to choose me and then for me to be able to say no. That, that doesn't even make sense. Like if, if, if the infinite all eternal God chooses you, you know, I, it's a, there's like a, there's a limit, right, to the way our, we can even use our own language. So, then, but you look around, practically, there's lots of work that has to be done. So, you know, having a way of thinking that at least tends to, at least engages the perspective that, yeah, there's bad stuff, we should do good stuff, or, um, you know, that makes sense to me. And so it's more of like a bottom-up construction of that kind of theology because I don't understand how that you know real heavy Calvinist top down actually does anything you know or or or, or can spur us on to, to do work so I think it does matter well I, I agree with you that it matters I think few of us have the, the the energy to think through it I'll tell you that after spending some time this week trying to understand both sides I feel like the best thing I can contribute is this is one of those questions that probably takes us to the edge of our knowledge or the edge of our ability as humans. And it seems like we hit a lot of those in this group. Last week you heard some frustration maybe about, well, how do we say that God is sovereign in control of all things but we have free will? I don't understand how they coexist. It's easy for Christians to piece them apart. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign in control of all things. Yes, I'm responsible for free will. We deal with them separately, but when you try to put them together, our heads explode. 
I think this is one of those same issues where I look at predestination, I could see the arguments, I see the scriptures, I understand it, I get it, it's right there in front of me, there's no denying it's stated. Somebody would say to you that, a Calvinist would say, it's ir- God's grace is irresistible, like his, his call for you is irresistible, his choosing is ir- irresistible. And then I read the Arminius view who's saying, no, it's resistible, it's just an, it's an invitation. Those words kind of make sense to me too, when I try to put them together, my head explodes. I mean, people have been debating this for 1,700 years. It started being debated even before Augustine. And people just have decided to live together with different views. Or, in our centuries, not live together. You know, just break up into more and more denominations, all pointing the finger at somebody else, right? By the way, if you want those verses, just read them. Matthew 24, 22, Mark 13, 20, Romans 8, 33, Romans 9, 11. Romans 11, 5 to 7 and 28, Ephesians 1, 11, which of course we're studying, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 1 Timothy 5, 21, 2 Timothy 2, 10, Titus 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2, 9, and 2 Peter 1, 10, all supporting and talking about God choosing. And that seems to be a lot of weight on that side, but still, like I said, it still leaves open the question, what does that mean? Let's go forward and finish up this chapter of Ephesians. Here's the good news. This is a part where you can skim a little bit. <laughs> I don't think, Morgan was looking at this with me earlier, he's like, I don't think there's anything controversial in this part of the Thanksgiving. So he's just finished the doxology, and now he's going to give Thanksgiving. Last week I told you that Ephesians is unique, that Paul gives both a doxology and a Thanksgiving uh, going forward. So he's just completed the doxology, and he gives thanks. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. When I just pause again and note, This is another place where just in a matter of verses, Paul has once again articulated a strong view of the triunity of God. We've had a series separately about the Trinity and understanding it, but you know that often the charge is made that this is something that just people kind of thought up later on. But you can see that in this last letter of Paul, he's got a strong focus on God's triune nature. And here he's done it again, where he's combined asking God, There's the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom. And we see the spirit already as our deposit and guarantee. Some people have asked, how is it that I get to know God better? He says, it's because we've been given the spirit. The spirit is the one that lets us know God better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, or we might say opened where we get the same song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. His emphasis is still on those who know God and believe. What is this incomparably great power that he's talking about? He goes on to say, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We're tempted to hear Paul's words kind of again as just another large prayer or thanksgiving and miss that he's making a connection for us. He's saying to us that we are to see hope and the glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power. He's saying we have access to God's incomparably great power. It's part of our inheritance. It's part of what it means when he says you're marked with a seal. You have a deposit, a guarantee of the future glory that's coming. The Holy Spirit is that deposit, is that guarantee. And that gives us access to our inheritance. It's a down payment on our inheritance. The Spirit that lets us know God, but also the Spirit that has given us access to this inheritance of incomparably great power. That's why he goes on to specify, not only is he just saying what God has done, but he's describing that power. It's the same power that God exerted when he, when he raised Christ from the dead. And when I was reading this, I was trying to think, what's the application for us when we read some big lofty praise like this from Paul? What's, what do we get out of this? And I just wonder if we really believe that we actually are heirs of God. That we really are going to inherit that glorious sonship, daughtership in the kingdom. That it's already been given to us, sealed, guaranteed, and we have a down payment of our inheritance already. Do we feel that way ever? Do we feel that knowing the Spirit is somehow giving us access to God himself? And giving us access to this incomparable power that raises Christ from the dead and also seats him above every authority that God glorifies the Son and is going to glorify you and me. Do we ever really think about it? Do we believe it? Does it take on any kind of tangible nature to us at all? Or are we still trying to wonder, like, where is God in this world? Where am I in relationship to him? These are the words that I think we skim because they're just flowery. And we don't ever look at them and think, okay, do I feel that way? Do I feel like I have that seal and that deposit and that guarantee and that access to that inheritance and that access to that power? Do I feel like I am a joint heir with Christ in future glory and living abundantly now? Do I feel that way? I mean, I'll tell you that this week I didn't feel that way at all. But this isn't about me and about a week. This is about, like, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ if we have access to this, to be the heirs of Christ, to be adopted, and if we don't feel that way, why not? That's the application I'd leave you with. Why not? What is it that's preventing us from being in that place? This is not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head of over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's the end of chapter 1. I'm going to leave these words on the screen for you for just a moment. 
because we're going to sing the first part of them, actually this part right here. And I'd like for just a moment for you just to focus on the praise that is given in Colossians in these verses. And then we can close in worship singing about them. So I'm going to pray and then I just ask for you guys for just a moment or two to focus on this high praise, this hymn sung about Christ and his place. And then ask yourself, if we really are his joint heirs, if we really are adopted by God, what does that mean to me? And why is it that I can read something in Ephesians over and over and it's still not sink in? What is it that is clogging the pipes? Let's pray. Lord God, we know you because your spirit is in us. Because when we believed in you, we were sealed by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, I implore you tonight to make yourself known to us. To break through all the junk in our lives. All the things that prevent us from really living into the glory that you have appointed for us, chosen for us guaranteed for us. Lord, whatever our minds cannot understand, replace that, Lord, with the fact that we know you in our hearts. Lord, my soul longs for you. Fill us with the knowledge of who you are and the power that you have guaranteed us as joint heirs. Let's focus on the words of Colossians.